0: This is John Nichols of The Nation magazine. Welcome to Next Left. This week we're in Pittsburgh, asking some fundamental questions about our elections. What draws people into politics? What makes them willing to take on the entrenched status quo? What leads them to open up about their own stories of struggle and hardship? How does this openness break down barriers and get voters talking about fundamental issues? We're speaking with Sarah Inamorato because she's got a lot of the answers. Sarah is a newly elected member of the Pennsylvania Legislature as a representative from the 21st State House District. Last year, she took on a senior legislator who was a member of one of the most powerful political dynasties in Pennsylvania. When this 32-year-old Democratic Socialist won, she provided a powerful indication of the dramatic changes that are taking place in the politics of Pennsylvania and the whole of the United States. Sarah Inamorato, thanks for joining us on Next Left.
1: Oh, thanks for having me.
0: We're speaking to you in Pittsburgh, a place where you've got deep roots. You actually said at one point that uh, you had never voted in a Democratic primary for the legislature uh, where the guy you took on wasn't on the ballot.
1: Yeah, well, wait, yeah. Since I had lived in uh, the neighborhood of Lawrenceville, that had been my only choice.
0: So, what made you decide that you were the right person and that this is the right time to try and upend really the entrenched politics of the place where you grew up?
1: Wow. It's a. How much time do you have? Because uh, <laughs> it's not a linear journey. I think that I'm a very non traditional candidate. I never really saw myself entering the political space. I was you know, working in the nonprofit sector. And what I saw is that there are really smart, capable, passionate people who wanna solve the world's problems, but it's an industry that is overworked and under-resourced. And more and more we're saying, solve poverty, solve homelessness, solve the world's greatest challenges. And we're relying on charity to do it. So I saw that there was all this systemic failure And that really the only way that we were going to create change was not necessarily landing another grant, but creating policies and legislation that was going to fundamentally change the way our society and economy is structured. And that's how I ended up getting involved in politics was really through that lens of helping people and wanting to make sure that the really smart, smart and passionate people who gave a shit about people were the ones who were at the table making the laws.
0: So you've got deep roots in this place. You know the neighborhoods. And yet you don't have deep roots in the traditional politics of the place. You're actually trying to take that traditional politics on. I'm interested in in how it works when you go to the doors. Is it in these days when so many people express so much frustration with politics, a benefit to be a newcomer?
1: Uh, I, I would say it was a blessing and a curse. You know, we were running with no name recognition but i think when you run a state level race and you're from the area, you're of the community, i was you know, i was raised here, i was very involved in different neighborhood organizations and nonprofits in the area. So i had my own my own network to tap into. That wasn't necessarily affiliated with politics, which i think was really an asset because we knew that in order to win our race. Um, The numbers that we were going to get weren't going to come from the people who were already coming out and voting because voter turnout was anywhere between 15 and 18 percent. So we knew the majority of people weren't engaged because they didn't have a reason to go to the polls. So we knew the name of the game was going to be engaging people in a new and exciting way. So we were we, we were a blank slate and we were able to build up our campaign on a vision that was very progressive and centered around the people in the communities that are here. And then, kind of taking on the you know political establishment, uh, you're kind of the kryptonite to everyone who makes a living off of politics. So no one really wants to go near you. So you, we really got to run the campaign that we wanted to run, and we knew it had to be rooted in grassroots organizing. It had to be about meeting people where they were at. It had to be about a bold vision, you know, backed up with evidence and good policies, but really about making change because people are really out here you know suffering
0: so tell me about your district
1: so it's very uh, it's one of the most dynamic districts I would say in the in Pennsylvania we have um, in the north where I grew up it's very suburban it's you know right outside of the city center and then we have all these river towns where industry once was and they're really on they were hit hard when the steel industry left and big industry manufacturing left the region and you had these very vibrant main streets that turned to blight and you see this nice resurgence now and it's the same with the city neighborhoods that i represent and there's a lot of tension that exists between what once was and what it can be and there's a lot of really exciting investments that are coming into our area now all of these main streets are you know are becoming thriving corridors. vacant houses are being remodeled and sold. But along with that, if you're if you don't handle it correctly, if you don't manage the government programs, if you just apply tax incentives and give them away to developers like Candy, then you know, you're going to cause gentrification, you're going to cause displacement, and you're going to cause fear and distrust. And that's a lot of what we're seeing here now is this tension between old and new.
0: You were running in a district that was feeling some stress and was feeling obviously, you know, the impact of change. And I'm wondering if as a, a young woman, new to politics, when you went and knocked on doors and when you talked to folks who've been in this district for a long time, was it perhaps because of the change that was going on that they opened up to voting for somebody that was a newcomer uh, because they had a sense that that what they had been voting for wasn't working?
1: Yeah. um, (laughs) It's very very interesting because I think that you would talk to you know, you talk to pundits, you talk to the people who get paid a lot of money to do polling and um, analysis of what's going on in politics. Those people rarely go and knock on doors of regular households in southwestern PA. And um, we made it a point to talk to as many people as possible. We knocked tens of thousands of doors. And, you know, I think that when you want to stereotype me or like build me out as like a, you know, a young woman who's progressive and she's a member of Democratic Socialists and she has an asymmetrical haircut that you want to assign me a, a following, which is like the, the new hipsters that moved into the gentrifying neighborhoods. And really when we looked around of who our supporters were, it was such a diverse set of people. You know, we definitely had people who were – Young and engaged in politics. We had families who had school-age kids. We had seniors who have lived there their whole lives who, you know, had seen the change and just wanted someone who was going to fight for them. Um, I had people who had voted for Trump and told me about why they voted for Trump and said, you know, I just want someone who I can connect with and who I know is going to fight for us.
0: That is a really interesting thing, the notion of a Trump in a Murato voter.
1: Yeah, (laughs) Someone should study that. <laughs> yeah, someone
0: should study it. In effect, you did, right? You went out and you, you ran this campaign. I'm when somebody tells you that they voted for Donald Trump and you're at the door, you're you're trying to get their support, or maybe they are already engaged with your campaign and supporting it, how do you engage with that? How do you wrap your head around it and give them respect and yet perhaps have a genuine discomfort?
1: Yeah. And I, I mean, you, you said the key word discomfort, right? When you go and you knock on doors and you have difficult conversations, it's not about comfort in the least bit. You know, I didn't, I didn't lead with asking about who they voted for uh, in the presidential election. I introduced myself. I said, hey, I am fighting for health care for every single person. I want to make sure if you work 40 hours a week, you have a job that supports yourself and your family. Um, I want to make sure that you can breathe clean air and drink clean water. What do you care about? and people said i care about those things you just talked about and i felt like in some ways i was accepting confession where people would just volunteer that information like they would say i just i'm i'm i like everything you're saying also i just want to let you know i voted for trump but i like immigrants or i don't hate women or you know it was like i voted for trump and i'm also i also want to distance myself from his hateful rhetoric And then you really have to step back and be like, well, why did why did people vote for Trump? I absolutely think that he has nationally encouraged white nationalists and other racists to be emboldened. But I also think that there's a lot of people who saw their lives and their family members struggle under the Obama administration, and they were ready for a change. And they were you know, thinking about themselves and their family. And I, it's really understanding the reason why. And the why, the why is because politics have become so disconnected from the people it was designed to protect and serve. To build a movement, you need people. And if you're going to have this purity filter that says, you're not on my team unless you've done X, Y, Z. If you're not offering people an opportunity to to do right and to connect with their neighbor to build something that can actually work for everyone, then I don't think you're doing, you know, your job as an elected official and a movement builder.
0: And it's interesting that in a moment where people are making all kinds of choices that that kind of break politics apart, that's also a moment where a discussion about democratic socialism perhaps becomes possible. And you ran as a democratic socialist in territory where there's a very active DSA on the ground, but yet you're still kind of blazing some new turf for for a lot of people. How did that discussion go?
1: Well, I definitely didn't lead with it. I led with what it means because the word socialism, even if it's attached to the word democratic, is still very scary to a lot of people. So we wanted to make sure that every conversation started with values and policies and maybe led to oh and by the way this is you know democratic socialism and people be like well if that's what it is then that's what it is uh it's much less scarier when someone has taken the time to unpack what that means not so much in my race in the primary but in the general with other candidates socialism was really weaponized so when I was knocking doors, because even though we didn't have a competitive general, we continued to knock doors and engage people. You know, some folks would then, you know, they, they saw the commercials, or they were watching the news and would say, oh, you're the, you're the socialist. And I would just say, what does that mean to you? And most people can't tell you. They just know that they're scared, because they've been taught to fear that word they might throw out Venezuela, they might throw out, you're going to get rid of all the jobs, or you're going to take over all the companies. And I said, can I, you know, can I tell you what it means to me? And we'd have a conversation. And, you know, even if people didn't agree with me at the end, they really were at least neutralized in their opinion. Because at the end of the day, that's the That's, I think, the faction of the Democratic Party that's offering real solutions that are going to ameliorate the suffering of people today.
0: We'll be right back after these messages. For more principled progressive journalism from The Nation, you can subscribe online to our print and digital magazine. And right now, we've got a special deal just for Next Left listeners. You can save over 90% on a digital subscription and get digital access to all of our articles for less than $1.50 a month. Or you can have our print magazine delivered to you for just 60 cents an issue. You can find it at thenation.com podcasts subscribe. That's thenation.com forward podcast subscribe. Every time you support The Nation, it helps us make this podcast. So if you're enjoying the show, Please consider becoming a subscriber. Now it's time for a question about Donald Trump and the world. Which is worse, Trump or Brexit? For comment and analysis from Don Gutenplan the new editor of The Nation magazine. Check out Start Making Sense, our sister podcast at The Nation. It's hosted by John Wiener, and his conversation with Guttenplan points out that Americans can get rid of Trump in next November's elections, but it's almost impossible for the Brits to get rid of Brexit. That's the Start Making Sense podcast, political talk without the boring parts. New episodes every Thursday at thenation.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to Next Left. I'm speaking with Pennsylvania state legislator Sarah Inamorato. So I'm interested in this, that, that you're at the doors and you're at community meetings, you're talking to folks. They're talking about voting for Donald Trump for president. You're explaining democratic socialism. And somehow that conversation keeps going. It seems to me that in, in your campaign You found that maybe we're not as divided as some people think, as some of our national media tends to suggest?
1: I think that if you look at us in terms of polling numbers, we can be, but that's not how human beings work. You really have to get out there and have conversations with people. What I did, if it was delivered in any other manner besides face-to-face or small group contact... I don't think would have had the same effect, to be honest. You know, I made it a point to to be very vulnerable during my campaign, to really share my personal story and my personal struggle and connect with people on a human issue. And I think that's how you change hearts and minds, is you get to sit down, look someone in the eye, recognize their your shared humanity. You know, I've done this with people who are very uh, pro-gun or anti-abortion. And, you know, I felt that that it only works if you can sit face to face with someone (laughs) and have that conversation. Mm -hmm. It's never going to be productive if it happens in the comments section of a Facebook post.
0: And when you talk about being vulnerable, you were very open about your own family story, about your own experience. You made a decision to be very open. What led you to do so?
1: It is who I am, but it's also supported by data, right? Like 30% of the population trusts government at this point. And when someone doesn't trust you, it's because you haven't earned that trust. And I thought that, well, the fastest way for people to get to see me as a human being and to restore trust in our institution is to be transparent and be vulnerable and not necessarily be refined and buttoned up but be real and the realness is messy and I was from day one talked about my family's story and before I before I launched my campaign I had to I sat with my mom and I talked to my sister and I talked to my family and I said I'm going to be really open about this and we went through it and because I, I just wanted to make sure that I was also not putting any undue burden on on and stress on them and i wanted to make sure that i was honest and true to to my own story and um you know shared shared the fact that my father struggled with addiction and and opioid addiction and alcoholism and how we had to move from place to place during my teenage years and you know what it was like to put myself through school and graduate in 2008 and not feel like there were any opportunities available for me, but there was a whole new uh, mountain of debt that I had to pay off. And then, you know, ultimately losing my dad to addiction and kind of what that, um, you know, the hole that whole that leaves, um, but also the, the, the paradox that is having someone you love be an addict, and cause so much harm to to me personally but also to my family, but also still having that that love um I think it it does kind of prepare you for for politics in in that sense uh just kind of morbid mm-hmm. take on it but
0: <laughs> well it's morbid but but it's honest that that politics is tough and it touches on it touches on a lot of issues, and not many political figures choose to open up in that way mm-hmm. And you also opened up about the fact that in addition to this addiction, being a part of your family story, there was also economic instability. And my sense is that we have very few political figures, particularly at the higher levels of politics, who talk about that.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, we think that poverty looks a certain way. Um, we think that it is concentrated in black and brown neighborhoods that it's chronically under invested neighborhoods that there's high crime rate and and while that is that is true and we need to address that systemic racism that has caused and exacerbated that poverty um, poverty is woven into pretty much every corner of america and it looks very different one of the most earth-shattering statistics I ever got was that 60% of Americans have experienced poverty at some point in their life. That is the majority of Americans knowing what it's like to not know where their next meal was coming from, to not fill a prescription because they couldn't afford to pay for it, who worried about losing their home because they couldn't pay their rent or their mortgage one month. And that's unacceptable. And if you haven't experienced that, then it's really hard to legislate it away.
0: And When you framed your own campaign, you talked about a new vision for the Commonwealth, and you focused, interestingly enough, on some issues that came out of your experience and out of your engagement rather than from a consultant. Yeah. (laughs) You put right up front in your ad poverty, asthma rates, and spending more on prisons than on schools. and. I don't think those are the three issues that consultants tell candidates to run on, but you somehow figured out that those were issues that connected with people.
1: Yeah, I think what, you know, we talk about the amazing first-time candidates who ran and won on very progressive issues. You know, it's myself, it's Elizabeth Fiedler out in Philadelphia, Summer Lee, who's over in the Pittsburgh area as well. We, We tend to focus on, the, the candidates themselves. Um, but I think one of the most impressive stories of our campaign is that we didn't hire a single consultant. It was all people who maybe had some experience with campaigns, but definitely weren't bred from that industry. They didn't come from the consultancy class. They were people who worked for nonprofits. They were students who studied social work. They were grassroots organizers. And I think that is something that's really special about what we did too. It's not just about who I am and what, how we shaped our campaign, but really who was the fuel behind it. Mm -hmm. And it was comprised of regular people who <laughs> knew the struggles of their neighborhoods and their families. So that's what we use to inform the, the messaging that we, we went with, but also the priorities that we're uh, pursuing now that I'm in elected office.
0: And I don't think many consultants would tell you to focus on asthma.
1: No, no, but uh, asthma rates in some parts of Allegheny County are twice as much as the national average. Mm-hmm. And that's because we have some of the worst air quality. And when you just talk about climate change, it kind of falls on deaf ears or people are like, listen, I'm worried about how to feed my kids tonight or I can't get them to child care or I might lose my house. Uh, they, don't, I don't have time for climate change. But when you say climate change is caused by pollution which is causing us to have worse air quality which causes you to have to take your child to the doctor because they're having another asthma attack and you can't afford your copay or the medicine because prescription prices are going through the roof you've then connected climate change in a very real way to their life and we're not necessarily doing our due diligence in the progressive movement to to make these big ideas digestible to working-in-middle-class families and and illustrate it help, helping to illustrate what tackling these big issues looks like for them
0: you had a wonderful line in your campaign in which you asked people if i, I hope i'm quoting it right here it was uh, vote for me and i will fight the right fights and and that's a that's a really powerful statement because the, the sense, I think, that a lot of people have about politics is that they vote for folks and they go off and they kind of move into this other world where they fight about whatever, sometimes petty issue that arises in the moment. And that notion that you would go to the legislature and fight the right fights, again, not something that maybe a consultant would tell you to say, but a very powerful message to convince people to maybe break with an entrenched incumbent and vote for you.
1: Yeah. I, <laughs> I think that I, th- what, uh, what's the most frustrating part about now being an elected office is that it is really hard to fight those right fights because you don't set the agenda of what's happening in Harrisburg at the moment. So there's often times where I feel like I'm just defending or trying to stop bad bills from seeing the house floor. And it's really frustrating when you know that people can't afford to pay for their like one in five people in Pennsylvania can't afford to pay for their prescription drugs, but you know, We've named some bridges, and we have a new state amphibian. And, you know, that's kind of held up of like, look at this bipartisan support. Look at this bipartisan legislation that we just passed. And you're like, people are dying. We need to, you know, these are not the debates that we should be having. But, you know, what's been good since I've, myself and actually most of our freshman class who's gone up to Harrisburg, have come from a very different place politically and ask a lot of questions. And I view that as my greatest asset right now is that when lobbyists come to my door, when we're in committee meetings, I'm just asking questions that I feel like this is what people in my neighborhood would ask if they were presented with this information in this way. And it's really getting a lot of people to, to think about why they're doing what they're doing to expose potentially kind of insidious intentions with certain bills. So even if you can't set the policy agenda, that doesn't mean that you can't create change in the culture that's in the state house
0: you may you may break up the whole lobbying business with this. is called a moral conscience <laughs> to lobbyists.
1: <laughs> Someone today, a friend who is friends with a lobbyist, said that they texted him and said, "Oh, I'm nervous that Sarah's in on this committee hearing today." Because she always asks my clients really hard questions, so I always make sure I doubly prepare them whenever they go into a meeting with her. <laughs> and I was like, "That's a good reputation to have." That's
0: a fantastic reputation <laughs> to the, have.
1: That's the kind of reputation I want.
0: <laughs> well, it, you're you're doing it right, even if even if it is frustrating. Because obviously, if they have to prepare for you, they they might even learn something along the way.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: You made a breakthrough, uh, defeating an entrenched incumbent that was noted, uh, not just in Pennsylvania, but around the country, partially because you're a Democratic Socialist, but also partially because uh, you and some other folks did have these breakthrough wins. Do you see this as something that's going to keep on going?
1: I mean, it's only going to continue if we continue to build power for working people and the people who have been marginalized and left out of politics for arguably generations or their entirety of the history in America. So it's not going to come by us just sitting back and, you know, riding the blue wave. It's going to take a lot of really hard work. It's going to take a lot of people going out and knocking doors, making sure that they're inviting people into the political process. It's going to take a lot of fundraising from getting small dollar donations and billing packs that are funded by people. It's going to take us pressuring all elected officials at all levels to not accept corporate money or industry influence and also have them bring up the bills that that would really have an impact on people's lives. So it's it's definitely possible to continue to elect more people like myself and the folks that I um, came in with this year, but it's it's not without a, a lot a lot of work. And I think the other part too is you know once we elect these individuals, once we elect progressives, once we elect people from working class backgrounds, uh, more women, more democratic socialists, what does it look like to govern? What, how do we redefine what the role of elected official looks like? You know, I've been connecting with other state representatives who are democratic socialist members, and but also just other, you know, progressives throughout the U.S. and just like how do we start to share ideas and say here's how I moved something or here's model legislation or what do you think about this or maybe your state house has more resources so they can do the research that needs to be done and that can be shared Um, so there's really this idea of collaboration and continual power building to really push an agenda that's making sure that we're creating an economy where everyone can live a life of dignity.
0: Well, the uh, the corporations have the American Legislative Exchange Council, Alec. So it, yeah.
1: <laughs> maybe
0: you're maybe you're going to create the alternative to that.
1: That's the that's the plan.
0: <laughs> it's a good plan. Hey, what's your favorite political song?
1: Oh my gosh, um, that's a good question. I mean, I listened to Sam Cooke, "A Change Gonna Come." Um, we listened to. I don't know. A lot of Beyonce, something that would like kind of pump us up.
0: Beyonce's Beyonce comes up surprisingly often, or maybe I mean, not surprisingly of often.
1: <laughs> um, you need that. You need that kind of energy, and need to feel invincible sometimes. And uh, I think Beyonce is a soundtrack that does that.
0: Thank you so much for joining us. You've been terrific.
1: <laughs> Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it.
0: This episode of Nick's Left was produced and edited by Sophia Steiner-Evoy. Our executive producers are Frank Reynolds, Aaron O'Meara, and Katrina Vanden Heuvel. Our theme music is Deli Run by Ava Luna, who you can check out at avalunagroup.com. Our logo was designed by Sinead Chung. Recording help this week came from Avery Keatley. If you're enjoying the show, please let us know by rating and reviewing us on iTunes and subscribing anywhere you get your podcasts. Join us next week as we take the next left with the congressman from the Silicon Valley, Ro Khanna. We'll be discussing colonialism, Winston Churchill, Bob Dylan, the Patriot Act, bringing high tech to Iowa, and a whole lot more.